Mark chapter 10, verse 17, speaks of Jesus, and it says, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. I like to write in my Bible there, liar. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Insert amen right there. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. And then Jesus gives us an everlasting kingdom principle in verse 31. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Most of the, the time when we, when we look at this passage and somebody's teaching it or preaching it, they'll say this is the, the, the episode where Jesus encountered the rich young ruler. All of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have this passage of scripture in there. And we get various details that one might emphasize and the other may leave out altogether. But what we find out is this man who approached Jesus had it made as far as the world is concerned. And so as Jesus intersects this guy, I want us to watch everything he's done primarily tonight. Whereas we've looked at his works, this is more about his ways and his words. That's the primary emphasis tonight. So let's start back up there in verse number 17. And we see this fellow approaching an opportunity with Jesus. And in verse 17, we find out that he had great intentions. Look at this. The Bible says as, he was, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, this man runs up to him, kneels before him, and asks him, good teacher or master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, right there, that feels like a home run because you, you've got this guy who has obviously heard about Jesus Christ. Jesus, at this point, has been working amazing miracles. Uh, his fame is beginning to burgeon. It's, it's just growing and growing. Uh, the the, the um, religious leaders are coming against him, and he's pushing back on them. And so he's kind of like a maverick, miracle-working rabbi who is gaining fame. And not yet does everybody recognize that he's a messiah. 
that he's the son of God, but he's offering himself in that way. So something has happened in this rich young ruler's heart. And so this man that had wealth, he had time on his side because he was a young guy, and he had prestige and he had power. Look at what he does. He's coming running to Jesus. He sees Jesus walking down some road, and he comes running to him. And he even postures himself in a posture of worship. He gets down on his knees. Listen, that wasn't a very dignified thing to do in that day in public. And so he is, he is showing every sign of being broken and contrite in heart and wanting whatever it is that Jesus has to offer. And he asks, them this, asks him this question. He says, good teacher, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? There's something within the heart of man that is very religious. The heart of mankind, if that person believes in a God, most uh, religion will tell you, if you do something well enough or often enough, you will gain favor with God. And so this young man is used to executing tasks. He's a successful guy. When he puts his mind to something, he accomplishes it. That's why he's rich. He's moving about, and he sees this as one more thing, that if he can just get the answer, he can accomplish this great thing called eternal life. So look at how Jesus responds to him. We find that Jesus immediately challenged him in verse 18. Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Let me just suggest this. That was not the response the man thought he was going to get. He probably thought Jesus was going to wax eloquently. He probably thought that Jesus might even have been impressed with his outward display of humility and piety and the brilliant question about eternal life. But Jesus always acts in ways, seemingly, that are contrary to man's ways. And so he answers the man's question with a question of his own. He doesn't really even address the real question. He says, I want to know why you're calling me good. Jesus is indicating here also that nobody's good except God. Now, let me make sure you understand that Jesus is not here denying that he's God. Uh, as a matter of fact, he would say many things. He once said, anybody that's seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So nowhere is Jesus denying that he is God. But what he is doing here is he's, he's kind of digging into this man's heart. He wants to know, why are you, sir, calling me good? You know, the question might be, are, are, you, are you here to flatter me? Um, are you just being respectful because you, you know that I'm a traveling rabbi? Or perhaps do you perceive that I am your Messiah? I am God's son. He's really saying this. What is motivating you? to ask me the question, and to call me good. Now, Jesus leaves the man in stunned silence because he doesn't say anything, and Jesus moves right in to an answer to the man's question. Remember the original question is, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus tells him in verse number 19, and he instructs him biblically. He says this, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, and honor your father and your mother. So Jesus goes straight to the Ten Commandments. Every good Orthodox Hebrew would have had much of the Torah memorized, much of their Bible memorized, and everybody would have known the Decalogue. They would have known the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus says to him, he gives them the five horizontal commandments, the five that deal with his relationship with others. He doesn't go vertical yet. He's about to in a moment. But he goes horizontal. 
And he actually picks these five things that this man is going to say in a moment that he's got those things down pat. And so, again, we revisit them. Sir, you can inherit eternal life if you live perfectly. Every second of every hour, of every day, of every month, of every year that you're alive. And Jesus embodies these things in five commandments. You can't murder. You can't commit adultery. You can't steal. You can't bear false witness. You you can't defraud. And you must constantly, consistently, perfectly honor your mother and father. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but is there anybody in the room that says, yeah, I've done that 100 out of 100 times? Of course not. We, We instinctively know that we have blown that. Could it be possible? Could it be? Perhaps. I guess you could live your life without murdering, without committing adultery, without stealing, without lying, without defrauding, and always honoring your parents. But I'm going to tell you, uh, that's only five of the ten, and most of us are, are disqualified immediately just by reading those five. But I find it very interesting that Jesus kind of gives him the horizontal commandments about how he is to interact with other people. So let's move down further into the text. When we get down to verses 20 through 22, Jesus is going to put his expectation out there. And we're going to see this man given an opportunity to align with the expectation of Jesus. So verse number 20, um, he gets exposed. You know, we tend to justify ourselves just like he's about to do here when he says, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Um, chances are he hadn't. Chances are he was grading himself on a curve like a lot of people do or comparing himself to the guys he grew up with or the guys that he was in business with and he's able to look at them and they're obviously heathens and so he looks at them and he says, I'm not like them so I must be great, I must be justified, I must be right where I need to be with the Lord. And he gives that answer. One of the things that's important to know about trying to keep the law, well, there's a couple of things you need to know. One, it's too late. You're not going to. You've already broken it. Number two, if you could keep it all, if you could keep it all, you would very well be justified. But we have this little New Testament truth that says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so there is none righteous, no, not one. So we know these things. We know instinctively that we're not perfect. But this guy's not convinced yet. And so he belts out this truth, I've done all of these. What's amazing about the law is, is the reality is if you violate the law in one point, you're actually guilty of all of it. We don't get to pick and choose. The law is comprehensive. And so if we violate in one point, the book of James tells us in chapter number 2 and verse number 10 that whoever offends in one point is guilty of the whole thing. Think about it like this. Picture a window pane, a piece of glass, maybe even this tabletop right here. If I take a hammer and I hit this piece of glass... The whole thing splinters. The whole thing shatters. It doesn't just pop out one little singular piece that mimics the size of the hammerhead. No, the whole thing is ruined. That's the way it is with the law. When we violate in one point of the law, the whole thing is shattered, and we stand before God guilty and condemnable. This man was not aware of that in his life, and so Jesus is is going to interact with him in a way that kind of extracts the awareness out of this man. So look down at verse number 21. This is where Jesus calls the man, and by virtue of his example, calls us into full honesty. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. 
Go sell all that you have and give it all to the poor. You're going to have treasure in heaven if you do that. And then I want you to come and follow me. So what Jesus is doing here is he is tipping the man's idols. Jesus is omniscient. He is uh, God the Son, the Son of God. And so he knows all about this man's heart. The, the scriptures teach us explicitly, Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. And so every time he encountered a person, he knew exactly what they were and how they were. And so this man who has just testified that he is exquisite in keeping the horizontal law with all of his peers and relationships, Jesus goes for the dagger. And he says to the man, as concerning you, sir, it's not a commandment to all people everywhere. I want you to understand that. I remember debating with an, an agnostic guy one time, and he was challenging my Christianity because I did not obey this example in the Scripture by selling all that I have, giving it to the poor, and you know, taking a vow of poverty. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. Uh, Jesus is saying, I'm going to go deep in this man's heart because he has an idol in there that he's unaware of. It is, in essence, he's, he's going after this man and his idol just like God the Father went after Abraham when he wanted Isaac. So this is this man's Isaac. But don't miss this. The Bible says that Jesus looked at him. There's a couple of times in Scripture where the Bible speaks of Jesus just gazing at somebody. That's a look that has more volume to it than we could preach in a thousand years. The omniscient eyes of Jesus Christ looking right at this man. But notice what the Bible says. Jesus wasn't disgusted with the man. Jesus wasn't even angry with the man. The Bible says that this man who is about to walk away and reject Jesus Christ, the Bible says that Jesus loved him. That the love of God the Son was in full force towards this man as he stared at him in that moment. And then as he stared at him, loving him, he said to the man, the issue, sir, is not your horizontal relationships. The issue is, is that you carry a little God in your heart all the time, and I want to dethrone him. And in this man's case, the God was his wealth. Uh, I, I feel it's really important here to meet, make, uh, make a few qualifications. Because we live in such an um, outraged class warfare culture now, where capitalism, of course, and wealth and gain and opulence and all of that is immediately associated with some negative trait. Greed, entitlement, uh, grew up with a silver spoon, all of that. Let's be wise here. I want to remind everybody while we're all together, wealth is amoral, not immoral, amoral. Wealth, as a matter of fact, all throughout Scripture is often portrayed as an indicator of God's blessing. Not always, but often displayed as an indicator of God's blessing. So if God blesses people with wealth, wealth cannot be bad. But what happened to this man somewhere along the way as he began to accumulate that wealth, it became too much for him, and it became too much to him. It started taking the place of the centrality of this man's life. And so Jesus doesn't play nice. Jesus fostered a very awkward, uncomfortable moment. The gentle, meek, lowly son of God backed this guy into a corner. He went straight for the one thing that this man 
would not or had not up to this point yielded. He saw through him and he said, your money is your God and the only way you'll be able to follow me is if you turn your God over, dethrone it, and put me on the throne of your heart. And his commandment was this, I want you to come and follow me. It's an awesome thought. Jesus, God's son, says to this man, in a moment when the man is asking, how do I inherit eternal life? Remember, all of this is an answer to the question that the man began. He's the one that opened up the conversation, knowing he's regretting it at this point. Uh, Just a quick illustration. I remember one time uh, I had just come on staff as a minister of evangelism at Meadow Baptist Church in 1997. And somehow I got two tickets to go hear a small group of people, uh, to go with a small group of people to go and hear Ravi Zacharias. How many of you know Ravi Zacharias? I would listen to him read the phone book. I mean, he's amazing, he's brilliant, and uh, just an awesome testimony of the grace of God. So we get in this little room, and I'm with my friend, his name was Chris, and Chris and I approach Dr. Zacharias, and Chris initiated the conversation, and I'm just kind of standing there third wheeling it, and just listening to those two talk, and they're talking about the church where I'm serving on staff, and they're going on and on about it for about five minutes, and then Ravi Zacharias says to me, "And, and who are you? And I said, I'm the minister of evangelism. And he said, do we have a name? (laughs) I immediately regretted that I ever got Chris to go up there and approach him. I think that's how this guy felt. He was wishing he could turn back the clock a little bit because he had started a conversation that uh, he wasn't skilled enough to finish. So go down into um, verse number 22 with me. Remember what Jesus has said to him. He said, go sell everything you've got. It's radical. Go sell everything that you have. Give it all to the poor. Give the proceeds to the poor. And then come and follow me. So here's the man's response. His self-discovery was going to be painfully enlightening. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. And the explanation is given. We're not judging the guy. The explanation is given. For he had great possessions this is heartbreaking this is a man who wants the best that God has to offer and when Jesus points an omnipotent finger at his heart and says you can follow me but you have to dethrone your love and trust in your wealth the man becomes immediately disheartened Jesus said, come follow me, and the next statement is um, that the man left. He departed. Jesus said, come with me, and the man went the opposite direction. And look at it. He went away sad. He went away sad. He felt the conflict. He, he, He felt the choice that he had to make. He was in a crisis of faith, if we can call it that. Whereas he wanted everything. He wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to be a disciple. He wanted to be a follower. He wanted in on whatever Jesus was doing in the kingdom. When Jesus told him what it required, immediately he's he's saying, I I want Jesus, but I really want my money too. I want to follow him, but I want to bring what I really trust with me. And so this conflict happens, and the man has to make a choice. And he chose his money. 
he decided that the best thing to do was to keep in his uh, arsenal, in his life, the thing that had treated him well this far, and that was his money. Here's, here's the danger of wealth, and Jesus will talk about it here in a moment, but the, the danger of wealth is that when you own it, it's awesome, but there can come a time where it begins to own you. It can own your mind. It can own your emotions. It can own your heart. It can own your priorities. So, some of the most baffling moments in my life is where I've been with people that have plenty, but they live in a fear of losing it. They have plenty, more than me and you combined. They have plenty, but they live in a fear, like a daily fear of losing it. And so they enter this cycle. I've counseled men and women before that are in that place and, and, and just trying to encourage them that wealth makes a very poor God. And then they end up, some of them, um, doing exactly what this man did. I've also had the incredible blessing as a pastor to meet very wealthy people who are lavish and extravagant towards the kingdom. And, and it's an awesome thing to watch them own their wealth. To, to make wealth your servant is wise. To allow wealth to become your master is unwise. And typically it holds one of those two positions in your life. And so this man was mastered by it. And the Bible says that he went away sorrowful. Um, without being too extreme with this guy, I want to give you two words that do describe him based on what we read in the Gospels. He was self-righteous because he thought he could do something well enough or often enough in order to gain eternal life, the greatest gift that could ever be given to anybody. And he was self-righteous. He was convinced that he was morally capable, he was volitionally capable, that he was um, enabled to do something that would obligate God to bequeath unto him eternal life. Self-righteousness. By the way, he was not the last person to be self-righteous. Um, it's everywhere, then and now. But he was also self-sufficient. He had learned to trust in his abilities, trust in his um, capability to generate income, to accomplish things. That had become his functional God. Let me pause here for a moment and just give a couple of diagnostics. Because we're gathered here, and most if not all of us are gathered here because we are either in relationship with Jesus Christ or we are in process towards. We are seeking and wondering and learning and growing. And that's awesome. I'm just glad you're here. But I want to tell you something. Being in church and being born again, being saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that the blood that he shed on Calvary was sufficient to wipe out the sin, record of sin against you. When you trust that his payment was sufficient for your sins and you surrender to him as Lord, then this transaction that we call salvation takes place. But that does not mean necessarily that Jesus Christ is your daily functional God in your mind. Now bear with me here because I'm going to tell you how to identify the God that you worship. Just listen to these questions. What do you love the most? What do you think about the most? What determines how you behave? What do you trust in the most? Where does most of your discretionary time, your discretionary effort, and your discretionary money go? Where does all that go? 
I mean, we all got to pay our bills. We get that. But if you have discretionary money, where, where do you funnel that? Where do you turn first when you're afraid or you're troubled? What brings you the deepest pleasure? And then this, what is the one thing that you are positive that you cannot live without? These little simple questions kind of get us to focus. Now, I want to make sure you understand, I'm not a legalist. I'm not trying to back anybody into a corner and say, aha, I don't know where any of us stand with God. I know I'm saved, and I, I trust that you are. This lady on the front row that I've been married to for 20-plus years, I know she's saved. But, but I don't know where anybody else is, and we can really typically only know our own hearts. But sometimes we just assume that when we're calling him Lord, that he actually is. Jesus actually addressed this issue. He once asked some folks, why do you call me Lord and not follow my commandments? Jesus asked, he's like, why do you call me Lord, but you're, you're actually disobedient? And so Jesus, one of his ways is, is he, he wants transparency and honesty in our lives. He would rather us approach him and say, Lord, I really do love you. But I need to confess, I've got an idol in my life that during the season I think I love more than you. Now, we, we're afraid to pray that because we've been indoctrinated with religion. And we think, like, if we said that, he would say, oh, I didn't know that. As if we're informing him of something. You should never be afraid of confession. Confession is not informing God of something. Confession is coming into agreement with God about something. And so when, when, when these things are going on in our lives, friends, I just do this every now and then. I mean, I'm not like morbidly introspective about it, but if I'm saying that he's my Lord and he's my all and he's my king and he's my God, but I'm living in ways that really don't illustrate that through life flow, then I, I don't want to run the risk. I don't want to hazard being a hypocrite. And so there calls for sometimes where we examine ourselves to see where we are in the faith. And this man did not take the time to do that. He was sad. He really wanted to follow Jesus, but frankly, he wanted his money more. I don't think that my issue is money. But have you ever gone there? Have, have you ever gone to that, like, scary place where you say, Lord, you can have it all. And then as you say it, you, you get this one thing behind you, and you hope he doesn't see it. You can have it all, Lord, all of that out there. Most of us have a, a scary place where if the Lord put his hand, we don't know how we would respond. By the way, some in the room have lived through that and found that their faith was real and genuine and proven and tried, tested, and true. Abraham was called by God to sacrifice his long-awaited son, Isaac, an excruciating command, a horrifying command. But Abraham, the friend of God, went all the way through it, released Isaac in mind and heart and spirit. And as the blade was getting ready to sacrifice his son, God stayed his hand. God is not some sadist. God is not out to, to play games with our head. We don't ever need to be paranoid of God. What he gives to us, he gives because it is good. And what he requires from us, he requires it because it's not as good as what he wants us to have. 
And so life is sometimes a calling to release in order that we might receive. And it is a test of our faith. There's so many examples in Scripture. I could stay there, but I, I, I really want to move forward in it. But I, I, I'm just encouraging. I'm just pastoring you for a moment with the text. If you know what that is, usually it's a person. Usually it's somebody in our life that we just say, no, Lord, I can trust you with everything. By the way, I just wrote a blog about this on Monday. You can go to it and transform truth. It's in there somewhere. And we say, Lord, I can trust you with everything. But please don't touch this. Please don't make me yield this. Please don't make me confront what I would do without this. And to the degree that we live with that kind of attitude, to that same degree, we're missing out on the bounty of trusting him as Lord over our lives. It is easy to trust God generally. We sang it 100,000 times tonight. You're good. We love you. You're awesome. You're worthy. We, 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 we just praise him and we lift up these things. But the, on occasion, it's, it's just healthy to say, mm, do I really mean what I'm singing? And I can tell you, I'll just confess, there have been times where I won't sing a song. There was one song we used to sing years ago when, when we were Meadow, and it had a line in it that I knew if I sang it, uh, I would be a liar. And it happened to be our worship leader's, like, favorite song. So every third week, we're singing that song. And I'm just like, Lord, I can't go there. I can't go there. And so, listen, don't be shamed. Don't feel condemned. But, but I really, really want to encourage you because I know you're wanting to grow in your relationship with Jesus. But when he puts his finger on our one thing, it's not because he's mean. It's because there is something that belongs in the place of that one thing, should he choose to take it. There's something better. And so let's go further. We'll go down because the man is now left. Go back 2,000 years. Let's get here in this Palestinian area, and let's, let's listen to his words, some of the most challenging words he speaks in the Gospel of Mark. And we've got to adhere to the words of Jesus. We've got to align with his expectation, whatever it is on our lives. And we do that a lot by adhering or, or saying yes to, obeying, connecting ourselves to the sayings of Jesus. And he's going to talk to his disciples um, in a um, counterintuitive way. And so he's going to talk to them about wealth. So look at the words of Jesus in verse 23 through 25. And he gives us all a warning about wealth. This is still in effect, by the way. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, let me tell you something about the, the religious mindset of Orthodox Hebrews in that day there was the common acceptance that wealth was always an indicator of God's favor and God's blessing. And so most people who were, were committed, at least outwardly, in their relationship with Yahweh, and they happened to have wealth, people automatically said, okay, well, those are pious people. They're doing it right. We should be impressed. We should, we should seek to emulate them because their righteousness is enlarging their 401k at a level that we couldn't imagine. And so they connected wealth 
just mindlessly connected wealth, presumptuously to the favor of God. And so Jesus is saying something counterintuitive here. He's saying, oh, it is so difficult for wealthy people to get into the kingdom. And the scriptures say twice in those verses that the disciples, their mind was blown. They're saying, well, well, wait a minute. We thought the rich people were the most favored, the most loved, the most blessed. We thought that they had an inroad with God that, that nobody that's poor has. And so Jesus is reversing the thinking, and he actually says the opposite of what the common belief was in that day. He says, no, it's actually incredibly difficult for a wealthy person to get into the kingdom. And if he needed an illustration, it was only about 100 yards walking down the road away from Jesus. The guy had just left. It's a pretty, pretty stern warning. Maybe it's a good time for us to just do a, what do they say, a checkup from the neck up, just to, just to think through something for a moment. I, I'm going to tell you something. Wealth, money, possessions, they have no moral capacity on their own. None. It is neither wicked nor is it virtuous to be wealthy. It is what does the person do with their wealth because that is the indicator of what's going on in their heart. Everything flows from the heart. And so when it comes down to this issue of money, I'm going to give you a couple of, of just other verses, okay? Y'all bear with me. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Listen to what Paul, the apostle, told Timothy, the pastor, to do in, in the church at Ephesus. He said, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of their riches, but set their hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Teach them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus they will store up treasure for themselves and a good foundation for the future so that they can take hold of that which is truly life. The Bible says the greatest expression of our wealth, and by the way, compared to the rest of the world, you're rolling. You got more money. You might have $30 in your bank account. You've got more money than a massive segment of the global population. And the greatest thing we can do with our treasure is to intentionally, generously, fearlessly invest in the kingdom. Every time we give, every time we write a check, in essence, this could be what is communicated when we're giving unto the kingdom. We're communicating, this portion will not master me. My money, week after week or month after month or however often a person might give and sow into the kingdom, what they are saying is, I'm not mastered by my money. I'm not mastered by my money. I'm not mastered by my money. They're dethroning the potential for money to cause them to disobey the call of God on all of our lives to give. And so they own their money. They've made money their servant. Hebrews 13.5 very simple command. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Man, you'd have to hire a group of attorneys to confuse you on that one. It's very simple. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. You know, there's a rat race going on. Remember the old bumper sticker from the 80s, he who dies with the most toys wins? It's, it's, it's a rat race. 
But the thing is, is whoever wins the rat race is still a rat. That's not what we're to give our lives to. When we sow into the kingdom, we're operating as, 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 as priests and citizens of an eternal kingdom. And it keeps us free from the love of money. One more, Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish as a green leaf. So Jesus is kind of packing those kind of thoughts into this, and he tells his disciples that, man, it's really, really hard for wealthy people to get into the kingdom. And I think we know why, right? Because ultimately getting into the kingdom means surrender and trust. And in order to surrender and trust, you've got to be pierced with the sense of need. Nobody gets saved apart from sensing that they need him. Because if you don't sense that you need him, you'll never come to him. And so God works through grace to open our hearts to the gospel. And in that moment, the human component is a surrender, a yielding, an accepting of Jesus Christ, a receiving of him. But when you are insulated from feeling need, you will be reluctant to come to him. A, a person that has abundant wealth doesn't ever feel the pinch of life. They can sustain themselves. Look, money provides a lot of comfort, a lot of sense of security. And the more you have, the more of insulation you build around yourself. And until they sense that, they'll never come to Christ, therefore they'll never get into the kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, they actually have it harder than an impoverished person does because the impoverished person has nothing to lose and nothing to prove. But a wealthy person recognizes that the lordship of Jesus Christ means I own nothing, including myself. Remember what Paul said? I am not my own. I am bought with a price. It's a package deal. And so the wealthy, Jesus says, Jesus literally uses this, uh, well, it's not a literal statement, but he, he uses this illustration of a, a physical camel passing through the eye of a needle. He says it's easier for that to happen than it is for a wealthy person to enter into the kingdom of God. In essence, Jesus is saying this, it is impossible for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God on their own. In other words, they'd never want to if God wasn't going after them in grace, if God wasn't opening them up. Now, I know that a lot of us were trained that, you know, salvation is just us picking it, deciding one day we're going to follow Jesus. I think it's a good day to become a Christian. I think I see my need. Lord, I'd like to make some arrangements with you. Friends, listen, nobody comes unto Christ except the Spirit draws them. Nobody. And so Jesus is literally saying that to, to get into the kingdom, you've got to sense your need. You've got to respond to the drawing of God. And so he illustrates why this is difficult. And so this is what his disciples do. Look down at verses 26 and 27. I'm just about done. He elevates our expectation because right now they're feeling kind of dismayed and disillusioned. And he says this, the disciples were exceedingly astonished and it said to him, then who can be saved? If the wealthy aren't getting in, well, who can get in? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. That's your exhale moment. That's your moment saying, oh, okay, thank God that it's, literally, thank God that it's not just on the person to figure it out and to gain entrance into the kingdom. But, but God can save the most impossible case. Uh, this has been stirring in my heart for weeks now. You've heard me say it. I'm going to say it again. I believe that part of the revival that's coming is we're going to see um, mass salvations. 
I believe we're going to see salvations occur that we haven't seen in a in hundred years or more here in the United States. I do believe that's going to be a component of the revival that's coming. And friends, knowing the power of God, knowing the grace of God, knowing the love of God, knowing that, that Jesus never gave up on you, we cannot give up on people. Why? Because of what Jesus said. Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but with God nothing's impossible. And there, he's speaking of it in the context of somebody getting into the kingdom. That's why I'm just going to tell you again, and then I'm going to move on. You can't give up on that person that you gave up on. I, I would only want them, I would only want to, I would only want people to give up on me um, at the point where God gave up on me. And since that's an impossibility to know, we never give up on people. Verse 28 through 30. Y'all still with me? Okay. So here's some good news, because the rest of this stuff has been like really uh, kind of a drag. I mean, it's just, this is not happy shouting, oh, glad I came to the Wednesday night service message. But listen, these are the ways of Jesus and the words of Jesus. Um, it can't all be your best day now, okay? There is, some, there is some expectation on the life of the believer. So Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Peter's saying, how about us? Um, we did forsake everything. I mean, you can just sense in the moment that nobody's real sure where they're standing with the Lord. And so Peter gives the evidence of like, oh, we got rid of everything. We've done what you told that guy to do. He didn't do it, but we did it. So Jesus, uh, Peter is sticking his foot in his mouth and tasting sandal, not for the last time. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, there's nobody who's left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or land for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now. In this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. He does add with persecutions. I'll save that for a different day. And he says, and in the age to come eternal life. Look at what Jesus says. This is the way Jesus sees things. It's, it's kind of not the way we see things anymore. It was very evident in the book of Acts that there is to be a, a koinonia, a fellowship, a communal body in the kingdom that literally... If I were to lose all of my property, the statement of Jesus here is, Jeff, don't worry. You've got hundreds of brothers and sisters, and their home is your home. And, and, and their, their supply is your supply. Now, all of a sudden, Americans start saying, hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. What is this, eminent domain in the kingdom? What are, what are we talking about here? Now, listen, just listen to the Savior. That's what he's talking about. That literally... The unexpressed expectation of Jesus is, yeah, I saved all of you. I put you into the same family. Y'all will take care of each other. It's just assumed by the sovereign son of God. And so in the body of Christ, when we see and find that somebody has needs, it's incumbent not on the pastor, not on the finance committee, not, not on the, just only the wealthiest person in the church, but it's incumbent upon all of us as the body of Christ to move together, to work together, to provide those things that our brothers and sisters don't have. And we're not talking about enabling the lazy. We're not talking about helping bums in the sense of people that could work and earn but choose not to. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, in a sense of forfeiture or loss for the glory of Jesus, the rest of the body of Christ moves in. I, I, I do believe, let me give this, and I think it's very sound based on what we read in the book of Revelation. The massive amount of persecution that comes against the followers of Christ in the tribulation is going to require, it's going to require such a tight, 
tightly knit remnant of tribulation saints, they will, it, it will not be a luxury. It will be a necessity. They will have to band together. And when, when persecution hits the church, and it may hit the church in America before the tribulation occurs, the way things are going, man, they're not real happy with Bible-believing Christians. So we don't know what might happen. But in those days where, where we're suffering loss as individuals, the body of Christ is to come together so that nobody has lack. And so the last verse, Jesus kindly provokes us with a kingdom principle. He sums up his teaching on wealth with this statement. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. Everybody's got an appointment with dust. Um, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. If the Lord Jesus doesn't return in the next 75 years, none of us will be here. And after that, there is eternity. The vast majority of your ex existence, and this is a tremendous understatement, the vast majority of your existence occurs after your death. This is a vapor. This is a mist. This is a blip. This is a tiny little dot on an unending spectrum that goes on forever. And we are called in this life to live our dot radically for the glory of Jesus. But a lot of folks, unfortunately, even in the church, are making their lives about trying to come in first on the dot, to have the most, to be the most, the most loved. I mean, if there's, there's one place that this is so obviously expressed, it's in social media. How many likes did you get? How many thumbs up? How many hearts? <laughs> you know, people are, especially our young people, they're, they're gauging their value based on who responded to what they did. Now, it's not just the young people. Listen, you are free. Be free. You are freed up from the quest to finish first. You're, you're absolutely free. I'm going to go even further at the risk of offending you. If I haven't offended you up to this point, this may be your moment. You're never going to be the prettiest. You're never going to be the most buff. You're never going to be the wealthiest. You'll never have the nicest house or the nicest clothes or the nicest spouse or the nicest children. You're never going to be the most famous. Matter of fact, chances are you're never going to be number one on the list of people that are living in your generation. Now, did that offend you? I hope it freed you. Because in this insane striving to be the master of something, we magnify the dot and we forget the endless spectrum. And it is what we do in this dot that determines the capacity that we live in the kingdom. See, salvation is free, and it is given equally to everybody that asks, but rewards are earned. People don't like that. People want to make everything free with Jesus. I want to tell you something. Read the New Testament. I know you do. Read it again. Rewards are never given arbitrarily by as, as just uniformly in heaven they don't have an everybody gets a trophy culture 
Our rewards are earned as we live out the dot. So who we are and what we give our lives to and how we're living, if we're scrambling to come in first, Jesus says, you're running the risk of actually being last for all of eternity. But the one who makes himself or herself the servant of all, Jesus said, that's the greatest one. That's the greatest one. Do you know how freeing that is? That we don't have to keep up with the Joneses or anybody else. But if we'll humble ourselves and stay in that place of consecrated love and humility and trust, and we will not become a lover of the world. We live in it. I'm not telling you that you, know, you need to take a vow of poverty. That if God wants to tell you that, he'll communicate that to you. But I, we're not even close to that. Friends, we're living for plasma TVs and Cadillacs. Jesus says, the last are going to be recognized first. The greatest saints in the kingdom lived almost anonymously while on earth. They didn't get their reward now, but they're going to get it in heaven. It's going to come straight from the one to whom they pledged their lives and lived it out for his glory. Let's pray. You are awesome, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for preaching to me while I preached to the crowd tonight. Thank you, Lord, that we don't leave here condemned or guilty, but challenged and freed up from the nonsense of this world. Thank you, Lord, that we're not in competition, that you've set us free from that. Help us to steward our dot with eternity in mind. Help us not be afraid, Lord, of not having enough now. And what we have, Lord, in wisdom and faith, help us, really help us to release it so that it never masters us. You're worthy, you are awesome, and we love you tonight. In your own eternal and holy name, the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we say amen.